Talk about it on WERU FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine based nonprofit organization Finding Our Voices, which is survivors of domestic abuse, including me, standing proud and speaking loud. I remember someone else saying, you know, on a secret conversation, and my little secret phone was, You're not happy, are you? And I said, No. And I just started bawling. I to admit it that first time that you could admit it, something's wrong. To be able to just say that, it's like you're opening the floodgates. <laughs> so just say something. It was embarrassing. I'd never had anybody treat me like that before. I, I did not even, I didn't want a soul to know that that had happened. My guest today is Gina. Gina has quite the story to tell. She is one of 10 participants in our first Finding Our Voices writing retreat, Healing Through Memoir. The writer and my good friend, Deborah Joy Corey of Castine is leading the weekend workshop. We plan to have more, so get in touch with me at hello at findingourvoices.net to get first word about the next one. Welcome, Gina. Good to see you. Good to see you. Taken, I was like meditating, freaking. I was like, <sighs> "What town do you live in?" I live in um, Portsmouth, Virginia. Okay. Um, could you just introduce yourself, uh, however you want to introduce yourself, for the sake of the people who are listening? Sure. I'm Gina Dobson, and I am a, an actor and a writer in Portsmouth, Virginia. I also uh, co-run a female empowering film production team, but in 1998. A SWAT team came to my house and arrested me while my son was asleep for um, for murder because an abusive boyfriend who I managed to leave called the police and said a miscarriage I had was actually self-induced. Oh, my God. Okay. Cruelty knows no bounds, right? And, and yeah. people who haven't been through this don't understand that. Right. And it seems impossible. Well, that's the other thing. It seems impossible. Do you want to take me to the beginning? Basically, could you let me know what your life was like when you met this individual? Unless you want to start earlier than that. Um, well, I guess it's easy to start in the beginning when I met him. I was actually just out of college and just after a failed marriage. I got married right out of college and within months that fell apart. I already felt like a failure. Probably felt like a failure going into that marriage, but that's a whole nother story. But I, I met him in a bar and to me, he was, he paid attention to me and made me feel like I was worth paying attention to again. And that it was, and everything happened very quickly from then. I, we forged a relationship so quick. In fact, within, I don't know, within days, he was already living in my house because he needed me. He said he needed me and I just wanted to be needed so badly. Um, and I, you know, overlooked things. I overlooked the thing like he drank too much. I probably did too at the time. I thought that was okay. It was 
like I said, I was very young and very naive and just new to living on my own. Oh, can I just ask you? Yeah. How old were you when you met him? How old was I? Yeah. I think, uh, let's see, I think it was about 26. Was he uh, older than you? Four years. Was the first relationship marriage, was was there any abuse there? Or what would you say about that? How would you characterize it? it you know what? There was, and it was um, mostly emotional abuse, a little bit of physical abuse. And again, I, I, it had, these things happen so gradually. It's like um, you don't seem to notice as they escalate and it just becomes your normal. Did you even recognize it as abuse? Uh, not at first. And then as I did, I thought, it's, it's my fault. It's, I should have done this better or if I could have said this a better way or he doesn't know any better and um, he just wasn't raised right and I'm going to help him through this. Yeah, all the all the excuses for the inexcusable. Yeah. So many excuses. Would you, how would you, when you first met this other person that we're going to be talking about, what was your first impression of him? I thought he was so handsome, so handsome, and everybody wanted to talk to him. He was singing in that bar. He told me he was singing this song. I just met the man, but he said he was singing that song for me. And I, I wanted that kind of attention. I just did. I had been lonely and uh, looked over, or at least in my mind, I had been. And this seemed pretty fantastic that who I thought was the most handsome and gregarious person in, in, in this room wanted my attention. Yeah, I can relate to that because I was, I had just turned 27 when I met my ex. Ah. And it, I was struggling working really hard, not meeting any, anybody. And, um, and same thing, like he was so charismatic and I felt so lucky that he's look. you know, he liked me and the same thing that the night we met, he told me he loved me. Like it just was fast, but they don't know you. How could they? Yeah. They don't even know you, but, um, so I was just lapping that up. So hungry for it myself. Yeah. Uh, And so tell me, uh, could you just describe how it progressed and when you started to see red flags? You mentioned already that, you know, right away, how long did, for for instance, like, yeah, when I first met my ex, the first evening that we spent together, he was ordering double scotches. So that should have been a tip off. And then but he was drinking so much, but I just didn't, it's like love it. Like you're blind. Like you want something so badly or something. I just was not seeing these things, but tell me about how from the start, and early red flags. Early red flags. Let's go back. Um, well, first of all, he was a heavy drinker. And as he would drink, he would become more and more emotional. So he would have, I mean, at first he seemed like he was making jokes and having. A, we were all having fun. A few more drinks later, and he's, his eyes are shut, and he's talking about things that happened in his past. And... Um, of course, this this didn't happen all the first night. In fact, it was uh, a couple weeks in before uh, it got physical. In fact, the first night that he that he did that, he was drinking because he was sad about a daughter he had in a previous relationship. This woman had taken her child and left. It was her birthday, and so he was drinking because he was sad that he didn't have this daughter in his life. 
and I didn't even know about the daughter. And I was, I was questioning him about why he was drinking so much and he got angry. And suddenly, uh, next thing I know, he's got my face slammed into a mirror, making me look at myself, telling me how, how I look to take a look at what I've done. And, uh, that should have been right then I should have thrown him out of my house. But again, I was like, yes, look at me, look at what I'm lacking. And thank goodness I've got someone here to show me, to show me what I need. Because he told me he loved me and nobody loved me like he did. And also, did you want it to be like it was in the beginning? So you wanted to just do anything you could. Yeah. Yeah. So that it could become like that again. Right. Yes. And I knew he wouldn't be like this if he wasn't drunk. So maybe if we just got him to stop drinking, maybe mm. it would, maybe it would be better then. Unfortunately, he only drank more more. And what happened like after that? Was there any apology or any, like the next morning or something? Was there any recognition? Oh. What do you done? That is very, uh, yeah. Every morning, if there was acknowledgement of what happened, well, in the beginning it was, I really wish you hadn't made me do that. You know, I love you. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't question me. You shouldn't have uh, talked to that other person and upset me. I really wish you hadn't made me do this to you. So at first it was, it was always like, you made me do that. I'm so sorry. And then it was, he just didn't acknowledge it at all. Like the next day came and it didn't exist anymore. And if I brought it up, um, it would, it would reignite and he'd come at me again. So I would stay quiet. Yeah, me too. It was like the next morning, sometimes it was still like really bad between us and we just do whatever I could to get it good again. Yeah. And he never, he never, we never talked about it. It was so weird. I remember thinking too, like the next morning I would be like, what? I should have stopped then. I should have not have said that. Like it was about yes. my behavior, what I should have done. And next time I, I won't bring this up. I won't keep it going. I, you know. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're exactly right. As uh, I think they go by the same rule book and also the, uh, the blocking of your relationships. Oh, tell the isolation. Okay, let's talk about that. That is a red flag that now my daughter is a, uh, a young woman and she is uh, 24. And I preach this to her to look for this, this red flag. Don't let them take you away from your friends and your, um, your lifelines to your family. That's a big red flag. They want to, in, in my case, wanted to get me away from everyone that wasn't on his side initially. Oh, that person doesn't like me. I don't want you hanging around with them. They're toxic to our relationship. Eventually we ended up moving. We moved to another state where we had, where I had no friends or anything. And he would block phone calls to my family. He would pick up the phone first and yell at them and tell them I didn't want to talk to them. And eventually I had no one to reach out to, or at least I thought I had no one because he told me nobody cared anymore. Did you, were you close with your family? I was very close to my mother. And um, of course he, we, we reunited. Actually, when I was in jail, we all came back together. But uh, yeah, he changed, had a very strong family dynamic. My brother as well. What was his family like? Were you cl close to them? Was he close to them? Um, he was raised by his aunts, two older women, and he did, we did move. He, he's from Nashville. 
We actually did move there for a short time, for a few weeks, because he said, you know what? We don't have any friends, any family. He lost 12 jobs for the short time that we were living in Virginia. And he said, we need Nashville because I'm going to be a country singer anyway, he said. So uh, we moved there to, um, he, he said that way his aunts could watch. I had, we had a new son. We had a baby son together. And um, they were going to help raise him. And uh, he would be a singer. But he just, he wouldn't get a job. He wouldn't get a regular job. Oh, it's like this musical genius, right? That that regular job is beneath him. Were you supporting his family? I did. I I kept getting jobs with a temp service after we when we moved to Virginia. I would I I did get jobs. I have a degree in writing. I was writing commercial copy, and um, when I got pregnant, I had to. I didn't have any insurance or anything, so I ended up leaving that job to work at a bank. But um. Then I still had to pay for childcare after my son was born because even though he wasn't working, he said he couldn't watch him. He had to go look for jobs or practice his singing. And so, and he was using our rent money for alcohol, of course. So we had a string of evictions. My God. Did you did you have any faith in his singing ability or did you think that he might make it as a singer? Well, he sang the night we met in a bar and I thought, well, what he lacked in talent, he made up for in, in charisma. <laughs> but unfortunately, maybe he could have been a good singer, but with the amount he drank, he would forget the words, he would slur. It just, it wasn't going to happen. I try, I mean, we paid for headshots, uh, nice clothes and jewelry that he said he needed for his presentation. Oh my God. Did he get any singing gigs in, in Nashville that you went to? Not one. No, he would just go to karaoke bars and sing and then get excited when people applauded. And yeah, because in karaoke bars, the, the confidence is what sells it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so w- how did he treat your son when he when you were pregnant? Did anything change? And how was he as a father? When I was pregnant, he did not hit me. He did other things. He would... He would squeeze my wrists or step on my feet, I guess. Okay. So he did things like that, but he, I didn't take the harsh beatings and kickings that I took the other times. So, um, that was a relief. That was nice. Did you think think that he had changed? Did you think to yourself, well, now we're having a baby and he's changed? Yes. I always gave, I gave that benefit of the doubt many, many times. Yes. And then when uh, Lane was born, he was so excited. Like he held Lane up like a trophy. He was like, this is my boy. Looks just like me. He's the best. And then he'd be like, here, you take him now. I got I, I, I to gotta go celebrate. I got to go tell my buddies about my baby. Uh, so he, he was not, he never laid a hand on him. But we were only together for less than a year after, after our son was born. I made sure we got out of there. Were there times that you, up until that, like up until your son was born, were there times that you thought you wanted to leave? Were you thinking about that? Were you thinking it wasn't going to work? Or what was, you you know, especially after these these episodes? Also, were the episodes increasing in frequency up until you were pregnant? I knew if I got beat bad one night, 
the next night I would be okay. It was usually an every other night thing. So it was kind of a relief. It's like, okay, today he probably won't hit me. So, uh, and yeah, I kept thinking I should save my money from this. But he had control of everything. He had control. It was my car, but he had control of the keys. It was my money in the bank, but he kept ATM card. What do you mean he kept control of the keys? Talk about that. We only, we had one car and, uh, and it was mine, but he would, if, if, when I was working, he would drive me there and, and drop me off to work and then he would keep the car. And then when I get off work, he would keep the car and he would go drinking or whatever, or under the guys. How did you get home? pick you up and bring you home? He would. There was a time when I lived close enough to walk and he wouldn't show up to pick me up or he wouldn't show up to give me a ride. So I would walk. But and for the most go, part. You can't go out with friends because you don't have a car to go out with. Yeah. And I really didn't have any. So the only time I would make friends, since I didn't have anybody from my past anymore, I had no connections, would be the people I worked with. And um, actually, that's what helped me in the end is that finally opening up to my boss at work. And she helped me devise a plans to escape, basically. Tell me the steps leading up to your decision of leaving. Prior to my son being born, I was beat down so much that I really, I just, at that point, I was numb. I was like, I don't deserve better. This is my life. I hate it, but this is just how I exist. And I, but then I had Lane and suddenly I had something to fight for. And I, I knew as soon as he was born that I needed to get him away from, from this life. Uh, his father had told me he was going to kill me in front of him. He said, as soon as I, then he was going to raise him and tell him how awful I was. Tell me how he's going to get him drunk and take him to see prostitutes. Good. He would strangle me in front of him. <sighs> yeah. So I'm <laughs> sorry. I just need to take a little breath there. Um, so I knew I needed to leave, but I didn't know how to do it. He had me, I was at a point where I didn't even know how to do anything on my own. I, or at least I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust the way I thought or the way I felt. And because I had no independence for so long to even make a decision on my own. So, um, I always made friends at work and my boss, she kind of took me under her wing kind of like a daughter since I didn't have connection with my mother anymore. And when I was, when Lane, right after Lane was born, she said, are you going to get married? And I said, no, I can't marry someone who hits me. And that was the first time I said it. And she said, you tell me, you say the word and I will go back up your place right now. And that was the first time I felt like I had support in so long. But he had told me already, if I left, especially if I left with our son, he would hunt me down and kill me. So I said, I can't, I can't leave. And uh, I said, he wants to move it to Tennessee. That was when he wanted to move to Nashville. I said, if I don't go to Nashville with him, he will be here in Virginia with me and I'll never get away. 
So she said, okay, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go to Nashville. And as soon as he gets a job, I will pack up and I will leave and I will come back here. You hold my job. She said, yes. But you know what? <laughs> he never got a job. Never, ever. Three weeks later. Three weeks later, I'm calling my boss. I said, I'm sorry. I'm still coming. I'm still coming. I had everything. I had little tiny notes written down how I would get home for directions. We didn't have GPS back then. And I had all my, I had clothes bundled up in tight balls hidden in the back of the closet so I could grab them quickly and leave. Had all of Lane's stuff ready. He just wouldn't go to work. So one night he passed out drunk and I said, this is it. He's out cold and we're going. And I, I picked up Lane and the things that I had pre-bundled up. And we left and went back to Virginia. Um, my boss had found a place for me to stay with some friends. And uh, I went back to work and uh, he called, he found me. <laughs> he called, he had his friend call the bank and say they were my family and that they were worried about me. And then as soon as I picked up the phone, it was him. He switched. And he says, he begged me to come back. He said, I'm, he says, I'm in anger management. And he started crying. And I said, don't you cry. It never helped when I cried. And then he said, if you don't come back, I am going to ruin your life. And he, so then he did. <laughs> well, he didn't ruin my life. Right after that phone call, he called the police. And he told them that the miscarriage I had in college, which was five years earlier, was actually not a miscarriage at all and that it was murder. It's crazy. And it was crazy. So uh, the police apparently questioned the boyfriend I'd had in college. And the boyfriend's like, no, that's not the way it happened. She had a miscarriage in the apartment. But they questioned him. They questioned him for six hours. And um, they said, we know what happened. We know. Just tell us and we'll let you go. And so after six hours, he said, OK, that's that's what happened. Yes. And I was arrested two days later for murder. In Virginia? I was arrested in Virginia and extradited back to Illinois. It took 10 days to drive me in a cage on a van, handcuffed and shackled from Virginia to Illinois. Why Illinois? That's where, that's where oh it happened God. in college, yeah. Did you tell them about the abuse? Did you say you this know, is happening, this is why he's doing this? I am so glad you asked that question because I think that is one of the worst parts. As soon as I got back from, from Tennessee, back to Virginia, I went to a legal assistance that the bank provided. And I said, this has happened to me and I think I need protection for when he comes back. And the lawyer was, was a female and she said, I don't see any marks on you. And I said, yeah, I've been trying to stay safe and trying to do what he wanted so that I could be safe to get my son out of there. She said, anybody could say they were abused. Anybody could say that. So there's nothing I can do for you. And I said, so I would have been better off if he, I'd let him beat me more. And she said, yes. This is a woman too, by the way. It was a woman. 
Is this before your arrest? It was. It was. It was uh, a couple of days before. You would have had a record of it if if she had if she had done something. Yes. Yes. So that was the, so I sought that help, and after I was arrested and questioned, I I had I would I didn't even know what I was arrested for. They didn't tell me, and then um, I was questioned by two detectives for eight hours. And they, when the topic of abuse, when I brought that up, yes, I left him. I left him because he was abusive. They said, did you get help? And I told them about the legal assistance and how that came about. One of the detectives, who was also a female, she said, well, did you go to Rose House, which was a, a local place for domestic violence? And I hadn't. I, I hadn't gone there because... The, I was still under this veil of shame and feeling like responsible for what had happened. And I hadn't done that. And they took that as, and you really didn't need help, did you? You are listening to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM, Conversations with Survivors of Domestic Abuse. With me, Patricia McLean president founder of Finding Our Voices, which you can learn more about at findingourvoices.net. Let's return now to my conversation with Gina. Yeah, I didn't, in 29 years, I never went to our local shelter. And in the disposition, uh, in the divorce, I, his lawyer was, was saying that, did you ever tell anybody? Did you ever tell anybody? I was able to say, well, actually I did. I went to visit a lawyer, you know, 20 years ago and I had the, the lawyer had kept her notes. But again, it's just like using that as proof that that then nothing happened because you didn't speak out. But we don't. Nobody. We don't. Uh, there's so many reasons for not speaking out. It's ridiculous. They don't. understand. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I was raised in a, you know, a smallish industrial town, very Catholic town, very Catholic family. And I was raised to be to be. Um, content and smile and friendly and always try to be a people pleaser. And that, I mean, even now that's still kind of me and I'm good with that, but they took that as there's nothing wrong with you. You're making jokes. In fact, they said that they should, these two detectives that questioned me told uh, the corrections facility and the court system in Illinois that I should be uh, prosecuted to the full extent of the law because I showed no remorse. Was it, was it, was it a, is it a, because the South, you think of it as very conservative and anti-abortion? Is that, is that, do you think that had something to do with the way, the way they went after you? My understanding is that part of it was the district attorney was actually running for office and how great it would be to have a groundbreaking case like this of a um, murder case with no body. They, uh, they pushed it for as long as they could, and I actually crumbled. I crumbled under the weight of it. I eventually had to take a plea bargain because at the same time I'm arrested for murder, I'm also battling for custody of my son because his father went, took that time while I was behind bars to try to take him away. That is so scary. So they're going to use your charge of conviction to give the child to the abuser. Yes, that's what was going on. So if I was behind bars, 
the judge actually said he the judge saw through what was going on as far as the custody battle not the murder trial they were two separate trials in two separate towns because they didn't want to mix the two and so the custody uh case the judge said there is no way i will give this child to that man as long as the mother is out of jail did the abuse come up in that trial how did the judge know that not to give it to that man his his sister and um her mother-in-law actually came from nashville and testified against him on my behalf whoa they said that he was abusive did they what did they kind they of did. they witnessed uh quite a bit including a. There was a night when he chased me through, chased me outside in the hills of Nashville with a shotgun, had me blocked under a car in the dark because I couldn't go any further because my son was in the house. There was no way I was leaving, but he uh, paced the car with a gun outside and his uh, sister's mother-in-law pulled up and witnessed that. But uh, what did it take to get his family, though, to testify for you? Did you ask that for them to do that? Or? Oh, I was behind bars, but um, they came forward. They came forward after I was arrested and offered to help in any way they could. They said if I had told them, if I had made the words, which I was never able to make the words, if I had told them back then what was going on, they would have helped me escape. Then I wouldn't have had to sneak out in the middle of the night and left everything behind. They would have helped me, but I, I didn't know. But also it's interesting, isn't it, how the no one's connecting the dots. Like, so this comes out in the custody court about him, but it doesn't help you in any way in the criminal to show the person that made this accusation is abusive and this is just part of the abuse. Right, no, they kept them completely separate. That was their choice to keep them completely separate? They said it was smart to keep a, a murder trial separate from the custody trial because, of, you know, it would hurt my son's case, trying to keep him safe, basically. And also, the media was all over it. Oh, were they? Yeah. It was, a, it, at least in my small section of the world, it was a big deal. And um, we were trying to keep my son out of the papers. Well, let's talk about that that we have in common because I have a, there's a lot that happened with me with the media and I you know my ex was weaponizing the media to continue to abuse me and they just you know went right along with it and and I actually after everything was over with his trial whatever you know and my divorce and everything I I couldn't even read newspapers for like years but tell me about how you felt the media treated your case and what your how that factored into it. I didn't even realize it at first because I was, you know, I was arrested without even, I didn't see it coming. And then suddenly I'm behind bars. The biggest problem is, or right from the start was that here I was behind bars, a young woman and very painfully naive. And I am all over the newspaper and on the news as a baby killer. So here I am going into the correctional facility. Uh, the, the guards were concerned that the other inmates might 
hurt me because of that. So they put me into one of the smaller cell blocks and they said, keep quiet. Don't, don't let them know who you are. It's really hard to do, let me tell you. But uh, I did make some, made some friends behind bars and they, they kind of helped me keep my identity quiet. They even took the newspapers that came in and would look and see, you know, they took out the stuff that had me in it. We avoided the, having the news on because I was inevitably on there nearly every day. What was the story that the prosecution was trying to paint? They called me a hellraiser. My, my father actually worked at the jail. He was a guard. They compared it to like the hellraiser daughter of a minister. That was me. And they called me a black widow. Uh, one newspaper called me a, uh, the mommy murderer. What, what did they say you did, though? What was, this, what was the narrative that they were painting? Did they say how you killed the baby? They did not. And there was, there was nothing to, to show it. I think that was one of the missing parts that led them to actually offer me a plea bargain to begin with. They put people uh, in my cell trying to get me to say things. The people who extradited me, the guards on the vans, um, one of them even said that I, had, I made a full confession while we were driving across the country. Who was your lawyer? It she was Metnick. It was a gentleman. Gosh, I forgot his first name. It was Mr. Metnick. Metnick, Cherry, and Frazier. Were they good? I thought so. Um, it, was a, it was a team. One of them took care of my son completely. She was separate. And then I had two that were working with me. So you got good representation, it sounds like. I really feel like I did. Which is um, unusual. It doesn't always happen, right? Well, I had a fierce mama and she went to bat for me and she uh, did everything she could to make sure. So your mother, that, at that point, your mother and you were reunited. We were actually, I talked to her for the first time in years, just nights before I was arrested. My boss did that for me. She said, do you want to talk to your mother? And I said, yes. So she called at the bank. We were at work and she said, she called my mother first. Gave her the lowdown so I didn't have to rehash everything. So I had such a hard time talking about it. She told her when we were able to connect again. She hadn't known I had a child. The first time she met her grandson was the day, the day after I was arrested. And she flew to Virginia to get him. Did she, did she pay for the lawyer or was the lawyer provided by the state? We paid for him. Oh took a long time. It was very, very expensive. And uh, she put some money down. We had people come forward to help, to help out. Of course, we had uh, a lot of bills afterwards. That was also another reason for accepting a plea bargain. We were just out of money. How much do, would you estimate the legal bills were? Well, this was 1998. And um, one of the I can't remember if it was the son, if, if it was the custody. There were separate bills. One of them was $60,000. My bail was $3 million. They set my bail at $3 million. They would not reduce it so that I stayed in jail because we couldn't obviously make that happen. We waited until it went down to a half a million. So if you had, if you had taken the, the court-appointed lawyer, because you were entitled to one, I assume, 
you might have been really sunk because maybe you wouldn't have been a good lawyer. That's correct. Yeah, that would have been probably devastating. And tell me about the plea deal in the end and what you ended up, what sentence you ended up getting. In the end, they said, or the prosecutor said, they would, if I plead to the lesser charge of concealment of a homicide, which is still a felony, it's, it's a felony, that, and I would have two years of probation, and I would get times, six months time served. And uh, it wasn't a homicide, and they're forcing you to admit to it. That's so horrible. Yeah. And actually, my lawyer did not want me to take this deal. He said, they cannot prosecute you. There's no proof. But I'll tell you what, this was Illinois, the state that had the highest rate of wrongful convictions. And I did not trust going to uh, to be a jury trial in a town where my parents, my family was getting hate mail. I couldn't risk that because then I would lose Lane. So I had to choose between a lifetime felony. And um, actually, my parents did not want me to take the deal either. And that really shattered them. They wanted a full exoneration. But um, I did take the deal. I took the deal. I have no regrets of taking the deal because the uh, ultimately, I could have gotten 20 years or more behind bars, and I wasn't willing to take that risk. Is there a chance that you still could be exonerated if people know about this case more? I think there probably is. I've actually looked at things like as I'm, you know, looking for jobs and not wanting to have felony on my record. I have looked into that. It's a, they make you go through a lot of hoops to make that happen. And uh, I just jumped through so many hoops. I was like, all right, I'm just going to wear this scarlet F. <laughs> so after the plea deal, you, walked, you were free? Um, yeah, in a sense. I, I don't know if uh, after the plea deal, I was, I was released from behind bars. The newspaper did not, did, what the newspaper said is that I pled guilty. That's what the newspaper said. And my parents were obviously distraught that they remained in that town. They're like, you get to leave this town. You get to leave. You're going back to Virginia. We're stuck here. We're stuck here in this, this mess where, where the parents of a, of a killer. A baby killer. On a top baby of killer. Yeah. And I, I understand that more now than I did back then. But I just, I had a life that I needed to live and I had someone to take care of. And that was all that was important. In fact, my children... And I have a son and a daughter, 24 and 26. They did it. I, we never spoke of this growing up, of while they were growing up. And it's not because I wanted to hide things from them, but it was more that um, I had to give up being a, a room mother. I could never be a chaperone. And so I never did any of those things. But we also, I didn't say, hey, this is why, guys, um, I've been to jail. 
I'm a felon and I can't do these things. My daughter's like, why don't you do jury duty? Why don't you get called for these things? I didn't want parents to look at my children and say, you guys can't go play at Miss Gina's house. She's a felon. I mean, I wouldn't let my kids go. <laughs> so it was just something that, you know, this was not, this was not a battle that I took on, but now my children are grown. And in this social and political climate, I feel like it's an important message. Oh my goodness, is it ever. Your story is incredible. Every woman needs to know about this. It needs to be a movie. <laughs> and so when did you tell your kids? I, I've been working on my memoir for so many years, but um, right after my daughter uh, turned 18, I, I wrote like a, a full draft. And even then, I know when exactly when it was. She was looking for college scholarships. And she's looking and looking. And she's like, I just, I'm making a list. And I said, are there any scholarships for children of felons? And she said, probably. Why? And I said, because I'm a felon. And you know, she didn't even blink. She said, oh, well, I guess I will look. <laughs> But, uh, um, you know, what? I appreciate when they ask me questions. It actually, um, I've felt lighter since then. Like, okay, this is, this is your mother's real story. And you have the right to know it. And you have the right to learn from it. It's my legacy, good or bad. And tell me, give me some insights about the woman in prison and jail. I think about them so much. The thing is, and, and my time in jail did change. It changed me so much. I'm so much more compassionate and understanding of the human condition. These, I mean, we're all broken. And it doesn't matter, regardless of gender, race, orientation. But beautiful things can still grow out of something broken. And I did. I had some very interesting friends in jail. I mean, if you've watched Orange is a New Black, <laughs> you have kind of an idea. It's not. I mean, we made our toilet hooch. We figured out how to make a eyeliner out of pencil lead. Somebody even showed me a way to make, what do you call it, foundation <laughs> out of mayonnaise and coffee grounds. Wasn't quite my shade, but you get the idea. We spent a lot of time talking and playing cards and ignoring the outside because it hurt too much to think about what was going on outside those walls. Um, if I knew, what I would really like is to know that some of them or one of these people made it out and um, they had a good life. But um, experiences that jail was set up not for rehabilitation, but for retribution. I actually was in there with a woman who was also wrongly convicted. She was an older woman. She was, I can't remember if she was a teacher or a principal, but she was from one of the small towns around. And uh, they found out she was a lesbian and accused her of being a pedophile at school. And so she spent months and months in jail before they finally released her. She knew she wasn't going back to teaching. But I did hear that she opened up a shelter for abused women. And I went looking for her, and she had just passed away. 
Did you, at the time, did you think about, like, did you talk to other women realizing that a lot of them were victims of domestic abuse? So many. Whether they, whether they could actually, like the stories they told, I, I recognized, oh yeah, that sounds like my life. I mean, I would have gone in thinking I had nothing in common with these women. I mean, I went to a private boarding school, grew up very sheltered. And here I was in these jail cells, many jail cells, because the time it took to drive from Virginia to uh, Illinois, we would spend the night in different jails. <laughs> but uh, we uh, had so many shared experiences. And some of them made them very angry. And some of them were just broken down and numb and didn't even couldn't even put together the fact that it was the abuse or where do you go from there? You know, where they, their dreams were dreams of being, um, I had a cellmate who in the beginning, she dreamt of going to Chicago to be a mafia queen. And she's like, maybe I'll just be a stripper. And then she said, well, maybe I'll go back to community college and I'll be a CNA. They just, they hadn't had the time to, to really, to dream and put their lives together. Don't you think and, that a lot of them, did you notice that they had abuse growing up? They were in abuse growing up in their families? Definitely. Yeah. Um, or not just abuse, but neglect. I guess neglect is abuse. I keep, that is important to consider, but also disinterest and not paying attention to your children, that's abuse. And that makes us feel not valued or important or seen. Could you tell me about um, this guy then? What, did you ever get encounter him again? Was there anything more to do with him? My son's father? Yep. He took me to court, of course, for custody while I was in jail. The guards drove me to appear in court. And there he was. And, you know, he was wearing a silk shirt and gold watch and everything that I had paid for as he, he stood there free and I'm handcuffed. And um, we go into the courtroom and he sat on the stand and said that I actually abused him and that he never laid a hand on me and that he wanted full custody and child support. <laughs> he wanted child support. I don't know how I was going to get a job in jail, but that's what he wanted. And um, of course, the end of that story is that he did not get any of those things. And uh, he was offered, I, I was told I had to tell him my address and everything where he could, where he could find us and that he, he could have uh, visitation. But he never contacted us after that. He knew where I lived. I mean, it was several years before we moved from that address, but we never heard anything from him. And years later, my son was taking my husband's name, and uh, I had to post in the last known newspaper wherever he lived that we were doing that. And so we did, but we never heard from him. And tell me about your next, are you still married? I'm married, yes. And it's 25 years. 25 years. Well, okay, 24. <laughs> How would you describe that relationship? 
you know what? I had just started dating right before I got arrested. He was the only phone number I had memorized. I called him the night I was arrested and I told him what it, I said, I'm arrested. I, I don't know why. Again, I will say this was a new relationship. And uh, he's, he said, what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to call my mother, please, because I could only call Fleck. I said, can you call my mom and tell her what happened? And so he did. And then I called him again, collect the next day. And uh, he's like, I can't do this. He goes, this is crazy. I don't know what's going on. And uh, basically, I was like, I understand. I understand completely, even though I didn't want to be alone in this situation. And um, so I said, well, I'll talk to you when it's all over, because clearly this is some kind of crazy mistake. And I'll finish this up and we'll talk later. And uh, it went on and on. And uh, I got a message, or I called him again. I called him again because I was just sitting in a cell. They had me in the hole. I was in a suicide watch when I was first arrested. I was in isolation for days. And I had no one to talk to. And I called him again. I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for calling you again. I just, I have no one to talk to. And he said, I'm so glad you called. I'm thinking about this. I know you couldn't have done this. And I'm here for you. I'm on your side. And he was. He, uh, I called him collect. <laughs> I wrote to him every day. In fact, a lot of what's in the memoir I remember so well because he has a stack, a box filled with the letters I wrote to him from while I was in jail. And then when I uh, got out and I had to remain in Illinois for months waiting to go to trial because I was just out on bond, he uh, flew to Illinois once a month and spent the weekend uh, spending time with uh, Lane and me and ultimately proposed during that time. It's a very, um, very balanced partnership. It's not you do this, you can't see this. It is a, a healthy, fun, uh, can't wait to see you when, you when you go somewhere. I can't wait for you to come back. But then we still have things that we do on our own and enjoy. I, I don't think I, I could ask for more. And Gina, is there anything else you want to say for this broadcast? Um, yeah, I just, I just want to say again that there's power in relationships. And if you don't have any of that power, that's a problem. And I believe very strongly in maintaining friendships, especially for women. We're stronger when we're together. And anyone who tries to, to, to keep you isolated or alone, that's a problem. That's a problem you should probably look closer at. And never be afraid to have uncomfortable discussions. Because that's also something that held me back for a long time, is not being able to make somebody else uncomfortable by disclosing what was going on in my life. Have uncomfortable conversations and um, just use your mouth words and be heard. <laughs> Thank you, Gina. If you have any comments about this show for me or Gina, get in touch with me, Patricia McLean, president founder of Finding Our Voices at hello 
at findingourvoices.net. And start saving up your restaurant dollars for July, when the Mid-Coast is going to light up with a Finding Our Voices foodie fiesta. More than 30 favorite restaurants, bakeries, food trucks are creating something yummy that is yellow. Yellow being the color of Finding Our Voices. Part of the proceeds from this item at every place in July goes to the Get Out, Stay Out Fund, which pays for shelter, car, and legal expenses for Maine women to get safe and stay safe from angry and controlling intimate partners. And if what Gina and I were talking about sounds familiar, if someone in your life makes you miserable and afraid, or if you are worried that this is happening to someone you love, say something. The phone number for Next Step, the Hancock and Washington County Domestic Violence Project, with advocates who understand it and believe you, is 1-800-315-5579. And you can connect with the statewide Sisterhood of Survivors that is Finding Our Voices at hello at findingourvoices.net. The terrific audio engineer for this show is Tammy Oropesa, and the music is by my terrific daughter, Jackie Lee McLean. You can find this WERU-FM show, Let's Talk About It, second Friday of every month at 4 p.m. See you next month, and until then, remember, love should feel good. Can't believe how long ago it was, dear. Somehow there's a vacuum in my mind. Tell me how it felt when we were both here and how it felt to leave it all behind. I took it for granted then that I knew your heart. I didn't think you'd ever go away. You're almost a stranger to me since we fell apart. Talk about it When are we gonna come together And clean up what we left Do you wanna talk about it Or would you rather forget I still wanna talk about it Cause the ghost of us is haunting me It never lets me
long, long time.